Amen. Well, good evening, Community Church. For those of you I don't uh, have a chance and the privilege of knowing yet, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and, and I'm just so pleased to be with you this evening as we celebrate and recognize this Good Friday. You know, over the last several weeks here at Community Church, we've been looking at several different aspects of the cross with the hope of preparing us for this day, for Good Friday, and then for the celebration of Easter to come in just a couple days from now. And our intention as a team of pastors was to, to give us as followers of Christ a greater sensitivity to the cross. And that's just what I want for us tonight. Uh, I want us to have a deep appreciation for what the cross means for us. I want to paint a vivid picture of Good Friday, to have us see it with eyes wide open, and then to live differently because of what we've seen. And so I want to begin with a question tonight, and it's this. What is the purpose of the cross? And I'm not really asking what God's purpose for the cross was. Pastor Allen addressed that a couple weeks ago in a pretty masterful way. Uh, we talked about the fact that the cross provides us salvation. It provides us a means for revelation and conquest over sin and death. That's God's purpose for the cross. But I want to ask a different question tonight. What was the purpose of the cross in the first century in Palestine in a land occupied by Rome, governed by Roman officials, where oppression was rampant for the people of God. What was the purpose of the cross there? The author Len Sweet, he writes this, he says, We tend to forget that crucifixion was the ultimate form of torture. The science of exquisite torture has never been equaled, much less exceeded than in the process of crucifixion. You see, to those who, who used the cross as a device of execution, its purpose was suffering. Its purpose was control. Its purpose was an example. But for Jesus, it wasn't just the physical act of crucifixion that caused him pain, that caused him suffering. It was probably even more so the emotional and spiritual anguish that he had to endure on that cross. So I want us to have an image in our minds of this day that we now call Good Friday, and to help us to see that even in the midst of suffering and death for Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of God was present in that place. And I can already hear you asking in your minds, how could the kingdom of God be present in the cross that darkest day that we know. But I would say, yes, that the same kingdom of God that Jesus spent his entire ministry proclaiming, that same kingdom that he said peacemakers and the pure of heart would rejoice because it was theirs to inherit, that very same kingdom that his disciples would go on to proclaim when they healed the sick and they set people free from spiritual captivity, I would say, yes, even on Good Friday, when we remember the suffering of Jesus and even when we endure our own sufferings, that very same kingdom of God is present. Many people will begin the, the story and the retelling of Good Friday uh, in the garden when Jesus is betrayed and arrested. But I'd like for us to take a step back a little bit further, uh, deeper into the garden, so to speak. Jesus has taken a few of his disciples with him, and they go off to pray. And while he's there, we read this in Matthew's Gospel. 
chapter 26, and there's a few verses to skip around in. It starts this way. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going a little further on, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Skipping ahead again, he says, Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, and saying the same words again. And so Matthew presents us with this picture of Jesus well before he's arrested, well before he's taken to the cross, and he's already full of anguish, sorrowful to the point of death. And many commentators have said that this time of Jesus praying in the garden is where Jesus has to prove out his life of faithfulness, his life of obedience to his Father. That in the completeness of that, this garden moment is where it has to be made real. Because what Jesus says in in John's gospel is that the Son only does what he sees his Father doing. And so he's lived his life in this manner. And this moment of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is the ultimate test of his obedience and submission to his Father. Other Gospels account that this is when Jesus is reported to have sweat blood as he prayed. And this is an actual documented medical condition. Uh, It's called hematidrosis. And it's when people experience extreme fear or anxiety. It's noticed sometime during certain death is about to happen. And so this is the emotional and physical state of Jesus here. And we see this prayer that he prays, and it begins with this plea. If it's at all possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Now, the cup is a a pretty figurative bit of language. And if we look back into the Old Testament, there's kind of two main cases when the cup is used as a reference. There's one where it's all about the cup of blessing, This is like in Psalm 23, uh, verse 5, talks about my cup overflows. And this is usually associated with a a time of God's favor or God's blessing, an experience of his goodness. And then there's this other type of reference to the cup, and it's not a good one. The second reference to the cup in the Old Testament is the cup of God's wrath. This is like in Psalm 11, verse 6 where the writer talks about fire and sulfur and scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. And this cup of wrath is reserved for those who are wicked and who work against the purposes of God. When the prophets would prophesy judgment over nations, they would pour out the cup of wrath. They would prophesy that God would pour out the cup of wrath on them. And so we have Jesus, who's lived this perfect sinless life, In this complete and full relationship with his father. He's never been separated from his father by sin. And so why would Jesus be looking for the cup to pass from him? By that account, Jesus would only have experienced the cup of God's blessing. So why would he be sorrowful about having to drink the cup? Why would he pray to have the cup pass from him? It's because the cup that Jesus was getting ready to drink was not the cup of blessing. It was the cup of wrath. 
It's the, the cup that he had never known. It's actually the cup that belongs to me and to you. Again, Len Sweet writes this. He says, this garden scene where Jesus prays is the ultimate collision of the will. It's where the human will of Jesus meets the will of the Father. But as was the case throughout the entirety of his life, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. He willingly chooses to trade his cup of blessing for our cup of wrath. And then he takes it all the way to the cross. So the the narrative continues. Jesus has finished his praying. He gathers his disciples and they go back to join the others and they're confronted by Judas and armed soldiers. And they've come to arrest him. They take him before Pilate, the, the Roman governor of that province. He's wrongfully accused by the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. And then he's given a farce of a trial. While he's waiting to be bound over for execution, they hand him over to more soldiers who beat him. And they insult and mock him. And while they're holding him, they, they wrap him in some red, some red cloak or some fabric and, and call it his royal robes. And they give him a reed or a stick and pretend it's his royal scepter. But they have no idea what their mockery is actually illustrating. They think they're doing something in jest, but in God's kingdom, that's Jesus' true identity, right? It's royalty. He reigns and he has all the power. If he wanted to end that moment, he could. But he continues to take their abuse. These same soldiers blindfold him and beat him. They accuse him of playing God. And they taunt him by saying, if you are really the Messiah, tell us which one of us hit you. And they wrap some vines together into the shape of a crown and they put it on top of his head. And then they beat that crown with sticks until it pierces his flesh. They scourge his back with whips. And then they put the crushing weight of the cross on his back and make him carry the instrument of his death through the streets. All of this anguish, this abuse has been heaped on Jesus and we aren't even to the destination of his death yet. We haven't even reached the site of his crucifixion. But at that place that they called the skull, he's given over to his executioners. And they lay him out on that cross piece that they forced him to carry from prison. And they put the nails through his hands and his feet. And they lift him up onto that cross. And I, I for some reason, have this perception, this image in my mind when it comes to thinking about the cross. And maybe you know the one I'm talking about. It's the sunset sky with the black hill and the three crosses lifted high up in the air. And there may be some people off at a distance. And it's almost a picturesque scene. The sunset looks lovely and the crosses look oh so symbolic. But the reality of that sight is much less picturesque and way more shocking. Because in reality, when someone's crucified, they're only lifted up a few feet above the ground. And the onlookers wouldn't have been at a distance. They would have been right there, so close and so present that they could have heard and seen and sensed every single thing that was going on with these men who were on that cross. 
This also allowed those who wanted to mock and insult the condemned to continue to spit their vile words at them, to continue their shame. It allowed the soldiers of Rome to continue their abuse and when the time came to hasten their death. The Gospels tell us that while he was on the cross, Jesus was offered vinegar or wine maybe, mixed with some spices or myrrh. and It would have acted like a painkiller, but he declined. He knew that the pain he had to bear was part of this great rescue mission that he had lived his entire life out for. And just before the time came when he would die, he cries out to his father, God, why have you forsaken me? This moment of darkness is thought by many to be the moment when he has first experienced separation from God. This weight of sin finally comes crashing down over him. It's the very definition of the word God forsaken. And it's not that God had abandoned him or turned his back on him or forgotten about him. It's just that for the first time, Jesus was distant from his father. He experiences the pain of sin. He experiences the weight and the gravity of being far from God. But this is the price that had to be paid. That was the cost for all of our sin. And I would argue that this is probably the moment of greatest suffering for Jesus all along. You have to imagine the life of Christ having felt this perfect intimacy with his father from the time he was a young child all the way up until the time of his crucifixion. And to feel that perfect intimacy begin to slip through his grasp, only to be replaced by the wretchedness of mankind. Every bit of hate and lust and greed and anger, every vile thing that could become in the heart of man was placed on top of Jesus. But this is the weight, and it's the way back to the Father for us. The price that had to be paid was for the son to be separated from him. He was the substitution that was necessary for us to come back to him. And if you are a follower of Christ, you know that that sacrifice is good news for us when it comes to our salvation, that this paves the way to us having a right relationship with our father. But have you ever considered the purpose of the suffering Isn't it possible that the death of Jesus could have been accomplished in some other way? Maybe something less painful, something less humiliating, something less public, less gruesome? In short, I think no. Because this is the way of the kingdom of God. Not that suffering is exalted and and, and good. It's actually the opposite. There's no suffering and no pain when God's kingdom is fulfilled. But right here and right now and in the time when Jesus is crucified, God's kingdom is present, but it's not fully realized yet. And and the way of the kingdom is that when things happen, they rarely meet with our expectations. The expectation of the people of God was that their Messiah would come with power and with might that he would sweep away their oppressors, that he would grant victory for them. But instead, their Messiah was born 
in a poor part of Palestine to an unwed couple, to working people, not to someone who was important or influential. When Jesus went public with his ministry, he, he spoke these messages that instead of endearing himself to authority and to the religious leaders, it made them really ticked off. And instead, he ate and he socialized with the downtrodden and the tax collectors and the sinners and the lepers and the women who nobody thought anything about. He went so far as to try and keep his identity hidden. He performed miracles and healed people and then told them, hey, don't tell anybody about what's happened to you. But nowhere is this reality of the reversal of God's kingdom more apparent than in the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Because you have to imagine all these people who had been following Jesus around and hearing him preach and seeing the miraculous signs that he had done, the ones that laid the palm branches down on the road as he came into Jerusalem were thinking, he's the one! And then all of their hopes were smashed to pieces when they put him on that cross. But friends, this is what our God does. He takes things that appear as evil and he turns them for good. And we see it all throughout the scripture. If you go all the way back to the beginning, we see Adam and Eve and they're given this perfect garden. They have the privilege of walking with God in the evening and they still choose sin. And God's perfect justice and his perfect judgment says that now the ground has to produce thorns instead of good food. And then instead of children being a blessing, childbirth has to be painful and awful. But God turns this around again and he, he makes his Messiah one born of a woman who goes through childbirth. And he takes those same thorns that are the sign of the curse upon the earth and when they're wrapped around the head of the Messiah, they become a sign of rescue. He takes the signs of the curse and turns them into the marks of a Messiah. You see, the people of God, when they're wandering in the wilderness with Moses, they incur God's judgment. They incur his wrath because of their sin. And God sends serpents into their camp to bite them, and it causes them to die. And when they finally repent and go to Moses, what does God tell him to do? Make the image of a serpent out of bronze and lift it up high, and when people see it, they'll live. They won't die anymore. And Jesus talks about this sign that Moses does when he's speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's foreshadowing his own death about something being lifted up high that would save people. But again, God takes the image of the thing that was causing them pain and uses it to save their lives. We see it again. We've got the Romans who adopt crucifixion, adopt the cross from their ancient neighbors, and they make it this instrument of torture and death a hallmark of control for the Roman Empire. It was a warning sign to people who would defy Rome. But God takes the thing that is a sign of death, a sign of suffering, a sign of control, and instead, by the power of his son's death on that very same instrument, he makes it a sign of salvation and redemption and rescue and freedom. And then we look again into a garden where, where sin first enters the world where perfection is broken. And then we have this moment on Good Friday where Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
does the thing that Adam and Eve could not do by themselves, submit perfectly to his father's will, to live the life that his father had called us to, and he resets the course of humanity by the very act of going to the cross. This is the good of Good Friday, that God's kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world, and that when we find ourselves enduring suffering, whether it's physical or emotional or suffering of our spirit, we have a God who not only cares about our hurts, but he sends his son to join right in the midst and the heart of our very suffering. You see, the fact that Jesus was given over to suffering and to death is one of the greatest differences between the God that we read about in our Bible and any other so-called God. It's the fact that God didn't choose to remain distant in heaven, that he didn't care about the pain of this world while the consequences of sin still ravage us. That very fact is this shouting testament to how deeply he loves us. And his great solution was to send his son into this world to bear its burdens and to be Emmanuel, to be God with us in every single way possible. What other God do you know of who identifies so closely with those he loves in such a deep way that he would give of himself in such a costly manner? The theologian John Stott writes this. He says, This is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He enters our world of flesh and blood and of tears and death. He suffered for us. And our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. And church, I say this as well. This is the God for me. So tonight we're going to take part of communion together. And I would want to invite you to take a posture of reflection as we prepare to share this breaking of bread and this drinking from the cup that for us is a cup of blessing. To look at these elements with a new appreciation for everything we've seen tonight. To look at them in light of the garden, in light of the arrest, in light of the abuse, in light of the crown, in light of the very cross itself, and to turn our hearts towards Christ in examination, in repentance, before we can celebrate that victory. To remember that it was our sin that caused Jesus to cry out in that God-forsaken moment. I invite you to wait and reflect with those elements as we worship and we'll partake of communion together in just a moment.
on the night that he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and told his followers this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take and eat together in the same way he took the cup after dinner and saying this cup is this new covenant made in my blood as often as you you drink of it remember me let's take and drink together friends as we've, we've celebrated this communion together we participate in this great remembrance it's an enduring sign for the followers of Jesus throughout the age. When we share this meal together, we're called to remember him. Tonight I want us to see one final thing as we look ahead to the hope of Easter. We've already talked about how the separation of God from man started in this garden of Eden, this first garden, and that what Jesus did, what Adam and Eve could not do in the garden of Gethsemane, he laid down his life to what was coming, even though he knew it was gonna be full of pain and suffering and separation from his father. But I want us to see this. This is from John chapter 19. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. They took Jesus down from that cross 
this instrument of suffering. They prepared his body for burial. And in a garden, they laid him in a tomb. This is our God. He takes the garden where sin enters the world and he redeems us in a garden where Jesus prepares to lay down his life. And then he takes another garden and leaves us with this enduring sign of hope because we know how the story ends. And then we come together to celebrate on Sunday that that tomb in that garden will not be full. God takes that sign that's a symbol of a curse and turns it into the mark of our Savior. Friends, I hope that you're going to come back with us on Sunday to celebrate this great hope that we have in Easter. If you're going to be joining us here in Mount Pleasant, our services are at 7, 8.30, 10, 11.30, and 5 p.m. And if you want to join us in Alma, we'll have services there at 9 and 11. And if you're joining us online, they're at 10 o'clock. We hope to see you when we can come and celebrate together the hope that we have in Jesus. God bless. You guys have a great night.